This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. The Buck Sexton Show. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome to Hour 3. We're very pleased to be joined now by author Mark Pendergrast. He is the author of Uncommon Grounds, The History of Coffee and How It Transformed Our World. Mark, great to have you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so uh, first, if we could, tell me a bit about the discovery and the, sort of the, the earliest days of coffee, the one thing that I ingest every day that I could just not think of living without. Well, it's a little unclear. Uh, It's fairly uh, certain that somebody figured out to throw the seeds into uh, uh, the embers of a fire and uh, roast them and then grind them up and put them in hot water. I think it probably happened by accident. Sometime in the 1400s in Ethiopia, which is where coffee grows naturally, it's the birthplace of coffee, so I would say probably then, but there are hints that it was used before that, that people knew that there was something magical, caffeine it turns out, and some other things, in the beans and also in the leaves. So they would make uh, a sort of a fermented wine out of the cherries, uh, and they would uh, brew the leaves as well, but probably the 1400s. And how did it make its way? I mean, Ethiopia, obviously kind of off the beaten path for the cafes of Europe. How do these beans that are growing in Ethiopia uh, make their way into markets? Where do we get Turkish coffee? How does all that happen? Well, first, the Arabs, the Arab world discovered coffee in a big way, uh, and there were coffee houses throughout uh, that world. They wanted to keep it a monopoly, uh, so they wouldn't let any fertile beans be exported. Uh, they were growing them in Yemen across the Red Sea from Ethiopia as well as there. Uh, so for a while, uh, Europeans heard about it. Uh, the travelers brought back tales of this hot black brew that everybody sat around drinking uh, as the social beverage. Uh, but it wasn't really until the 1600s uh, that Europe discovered coffee in a big way Starting in about 1650, by 1700, there were 2,000 coffee houses in London alone. And coffee really was responsible for changing the way of life uh, in Europe. Until then, people drank an awful lot of alcoholic beverages, uh, and so they sort of sobered up, and it produced a lot of uh, wonderful results, Uh, literature, music, 
uh, and a lot of revolutions, as a matter of fact, were planned uh, in coffee houses. Yeah, this is, I know is mentioned America. in the literature from your book. Uh, what's the what's the role of coffee, my favorite beverage, in overthrowing governments? Well, I think it makes people uh, think more clearly and uh, become more sociable in terms of, of planning things together. So. You know, one of the early stories in the book was that the uh, governor of Mecca didn't like people writing satirical verses about him in 1511, and he tried to close the coffee houses, and he failed to do it then. Uh, so there's a long history of sort of uh, uh, fomenting uh, uh, seditious thought in coffee houses. And it's been so. It was it, where was it banned, by the way? I mean, you mentioned the bans. Where has coffee been banned in the past? Well, the governor of Mecca tried to ban it there, but uh, he was quickly overridden. Um, in Germany, uh, uh, King uh, Frederick the Great uh, decided that everybody should drink beer. He didn't like coffee being uh, uh, grown, uh, I mean, being uh, imported. Um, I'm trying to think who else banned it. The, the Turks, uh, some Turkish guy banned it for a while and had people sewn into sacks and thrown into the Bosphorus if they drank coffee. So there were many efforts to suppress it. A, a lot of people thought that it was bad for you, um, uh, including in America. Uh, around the turn of the 20th century, uh, John Harvey Kellogg, for whom Kellogg's is named, decided coffee was horrible for you, and he promoted uh, substitutes made out of barley and other grains. And so that kind of stuck. A lot of people still think that it, it's bad for you, or as a matter of fact, it's, it's actually probably good for you. In yeah, what's your, I mean, you wrote, a, you literally wrote the book on this, so what's your take on, on the health benefits, or, or the most current research, at least, as to the health benefits on coffee? Well, you know, you can't really uh, test by injecting people uh, with things, so you have to go by epidemiological studies. And But they've done relative, and, and back in the 1980s, early 80s, they thought, oh, coffee causes pancreatic cancer and breast lumps and heart disease and all kinds of horrible things. But the studies weren't done very well, and they didn't, you know, sort out people who smoked from people who drank coffee. And there was a great deal of overlap in those days. Now they've done much bigger uh, epidemiological studies that seem to indicate that not only does coffee not harm you, it helps to reduce liver cancer, suicide, uh, and basically moderate coffee drinking appears to be good for you. And it's the second most valuable exported legal commodity on earth. Uh, what's number one? That's not true, actually. Uh, I I, uh, I helped to promote that myth. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> because everybody in the coffee world kept telling me that that was true. Uh, but it turns out, subsequent to my first edition, uh, in the second edition, I said, oops, that's an urban myth. Uh, coffee's probably about, oh, 15th or something. Uh, if you <laughs> okay, so it's a ways back like, there. All right, what's number Do you know what number one, two, and three are, out of curiosity, or at least number one? Number one is oil. That makes uh, sense. And that we always knew. But I think second is something like copper. Uh, so if you're talking about food commodities, it's probably higher up on the chain. But it, it's it's grown in about 50 countries. You ask how it's spread around the world. You know, it, it, it the uh, the Dutch finally got hold of some fertile beans and began growing them in, in Java and Ceylon. 
And then the French got hold of a plant, and a French lieutenant in 1723 brought it to the island of Martinique. And from that one plant probably descends most of the coffee in the Western Hemisphere. So it now grows in a girdle between the tropics of Capricorn and Cancer. Uh, it has to be grown in uh, tropical regions where it never freezes. It grows best up on uh, volcanic mountainsides between 3,000 and 6,000 feet up, at least the good stuff, Arabica coffee. Robusta is another brand which you'll mostly find in uh, some espressos and instant coffee, and, and that can grow lower down. Where, where I know Starbucks is opening their sort of high-end, uh, their high-end stores relatively soon to try to capture that part of the of the coffee market, right? There's going to be, I think, ten dollar cups of coffee will be available in these in these new things. Uh, with the most expensive, the best coffee in the world, where does it come from? Well, you know, you, uh, there's big arguments about that. The most expensive coffee tends to be the most rare, but not necessarily the best. So, for instance, Kopi Luwak is, I think, the most expensive coffee still. And that's coffee which is digested through the gut of the civet cat and pooped out the other end. Uh, and it adds a certain je ne sais quoi, gutsy quality to the coffee. I've heard about this. This is really <laughs> a thing that, that people drink? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's considered a real delicacy in Indonesia. Um, but, uh, you know, some of the most expensive coffee in the world that's uh, processed normally is Panama Gesha uh, or Jamaica Blue Mountain, everybody has heard of, or Kona. And they're, you know, it's it's like asking somebody what's the best wine in the world, Um you know, it depends on your taste, and there are so many wonderful and different wines, and the same thing is true of coffee. Uh, it's, you know, some of the best coffee in the world is still grown in Ethiopia. It's really quite unique and wonderful, and particularly in an area, area called Yurgachev. Um, but I also love coffee from uh, Guatemala, from Costa Rica, from Papua New Guinea, uh, from uh, Kenya. Uh, there's some wonderful coffees coming out of uh, India from Thailand. Who knew? In fact, I wrote another book about coffee from Thailand called Beyond Fair Trade, which just came out last year. Th there's one other thing I wanted to mention, by the way, that's not so jolly about coffee. It has a history of slavery. The Dutch enslaved the, the natives of the East Indies in order to grow coffee. It's a very labor-intensive crop. Uh, and the Spaniards and the French uh, brought Africans to grow their coffee trees, slaves, the Portuguese to Brazil. In fact, Brazil had slavery until 1888, longer than anyone else in the Western Hemisphere, because uh, of coffee. And to this day, you know, you have to be careful about where your coffee comes from, which is why fair trade coffee has become popular, because you can be sure that they're treated decently. Uh, but fair trade is not the only way to, to make sure that you're getting – I mean, the good news is if you're drinking really good coffee, probably the people have been treated decently. I'm speaking to Mark Pendergrass, who's the author of Uncommon Grounds, The History of Coffee and How It Transformed Our World, available on Amazon. You can also go to markpendergrass.com for more, and he has more recent books as well. Uh, Mark, I want to ask you, whenever I'm in uh, – I'm here in New York City, and, and I go into a, a coffee shop where – they have this board full of all these different names, but a bunch of them strike me as Italian because they clearly, you know, cappuccino, macchiato, 
How did that all start happening? Well, the Italians started to, you know, Venice was a great importing place, so they began to get coffee beans back in the 1600s uh, very early on, and you had street vendors. So they developed, you know, espresso was invented by an Italian around 1901, where you very finely grind uh, roasted coffee, and then you force hot water through it at high pressure, and it produces what we now know as espresso. So... uh, Cappuccino and macchiato and all those other things are just basically uh, milk with uh, some coffee in it. <laughs> no, I, I know what it is, but where does it come from? I mean, I drink it all the time, right? But cappuccino, is it right. I remember, is it the cappuccino monks or something like that? Aren't there these stories about this? Um, yes. Supposedly, they're the first ones who made it. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it, it certainly comes from Italy, you have to be a little careful. I mean, the Starbucks version of a latte or a cappuccino isn't necessarily what you're going to get in Italy, and and they don't tend to drink it except at breakfast, maybe. Um, so they drink a lot more straight espresso than we do. Do you drink black? Are you are you a black coffee man yourself, if I may ask? I mean, you spend a lot of time knowing about and studying coffee. Or do you throw some milk in there? I do throw milk in there. To be honest with you. Um, when I'm tasting coffee for writing about it, I don't. Uh, I will cup it uh, by uh, slurping just the straight stuff right into my mouth. Um, but to drink it for breakfast, I usually add a little milk. Last breakfast. question for you, Mark. If someone Is there such thing as good, like, sort of Keurig cup-based coffee, or is that just asking for too much? Yeah. I think Keurig is actually uh, quite good. I don't think it's as good as fresh roasted and fresh brewed coffee, and my preferred way of brewing is with a French press, although it's kind of messy to clean up. Um, But, uh, no, it's not bad at all. Uh, Depends on the beans that go into it. Uh, But, you know, I had a Christmas party the other day, and I dragged my Keurig up for that. Uh, All right. It's a lot easier for guests to use it. Okay, cool. Mark Pendergrast is author of Uncommon Grounds, The History of Coffee and How It Transformed Our World. And, Mark, what's your more recent book? It's called Beyond Fair Trade. Uh, It's an interesting book. It was published in Canada, so it hasn't made a lot of impression here. But it's uh, it's about a little tiny village in Thailand called Doi Chang. It means Elephant Mountain. And it's kind of part anthropological. It's about a hill tribe called the Aka who were persecuted, who used to grow opium poppies, and then they couldn't do that anymore. They were starving to death. Their women were uh, prostituting themselves and getting AIDS. And coffee has saved their lives and made them wealthy beyond their wildest beliefs. And it's sort of like the Starbucks story of Thailand. It, it's. I, I do recommend people take a look at it. They can. They may have to special order it. Okay. Well, everyone's listening, so they can check it out. Mark uh, Pendergrass, great to have you, sir. Thanks for making the time today. Thank you. Take care. See, team, I drink coffee. I figured we'd learn a little bit about coffee. It's how we roll in the Freedom Hut. It's just const- It's analysis. It's knowledge. Occasionally some comedy, even accidental comedy. Though none of that today that I'm aware of. Back in a few. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network.
The Buck Sexton Show. I, I just, I find the history of food and different foods fascinating. That's why we had the coffee author on there. Um, I had read his, uh, I had read this sort of sample chapter of his book that you can get for free on Kindle. I hadn't read the whole book though. Uh, and uh, I, I've read whole books on chocolate and on olives. I'm trying to think of other foods. We'll get some of those on. Some of this stuff is fascinating, the politics around it. I've mentioned to you in the past the sort of politics that surround coffee within the office, as in if there's options where you go. And I told you the CIA, there was red state, blue state. There was Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks. Um, but also, <laughs> it was like this one, in the NYPD Intelligence Division here in New York, there was a very like hipster, everybody who worked there had to have lots of tattoos and piercings. But I mean, the coffee was just delicious. I mean, the lattes were f- like five fifty. It was really expensive, but uh, the coffee was amazing. And the sort of intelligence community analysts that were assigned to the intelligence division, people like me or that had joined up with the intel division, went there. And the police officers, the NYPD that we were sort of uh, co-located with, they all went to a nearby gas station for their coffee. And this created quite a. There was quite a rift because you would see. The intelligence community analysts, you know, and, and there was a lot of talk about how they thought that, you know, those they thought they were all a bunch of fancy, fancy pants types uh, going to get their coffee from, as the cops called them, the anarchists, <laughs> which I was kind of like, there was like, yeah, do you get your uh, anarchist coffee today? Yeah. What did that cost you? Like 50 bucks. And it wasn't 50, but it was quite expensive. And they would go over to the gas station. They'd come back. They'd say, yeah, that's right. A dollar fifty. And uh, the, the creamer that you don't have to refrigerate, and I was just like, "Yeah, you know, this is differences and differences in one's approach to caffeination, both equally equally valid, totally acceptable." You know, different strokes for different folks. Uh, John in in Bucks County, named for I wish me, but apparently not. What's up, John? What's up, John? Hi, Buck. How are you? Good. Good. Okay. Uh, yeah, I want to call about uh, Trump. Uh, I, I called you a few times before the election, hoping that Trump would, would win. I think what I told you was I, I thought he'd govern um, uh, as a businessman, you know, have good, good, good people around him. I, I'm not disappointed with what he's been doing so far. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, my wife comes from upstate Pennsylvania. They're not a very political bunch up there, and if they are, they're mostly uh, Democrat-leaning, I would say. And he, he kind of turned them because I think they got tired of, uh, you know, hearing things on the TV that just weren't true. I mean, they're not, you know, not, a lot of those people don't have cable and like an Obama phone means a lot to them. But, uh, but frankly, they got tired of, you know, hearing basically fake news from, or, you know, very one-sided news. You know, somebody goes out and kills a Muslim, goes out and kills a bunch of people. And then next thing you know, the attorney general's coming on and going, well, we're, our main concern is that, you know, that somebody's going to say something mean to a Muslim. Well, they're like, well, really? What? That's your main concern? So, uh, that being said, this thing with the electors, um, I, I know these people pretty good. I think that's a lot of the people who, who voted them in. And uh, I, the fact that they're not covering the fact that they're actually trying to, like, uh, they're releasing people's names, they're, you know, uh, attacking them, they're... Uh, basically putting out, like, one-sided news. There was some Russian intervention uh, in the thing, but it didn't swing the election. There's no no proof of that. But should they manage to do something like that, um, you know, I really hope they don't. Uh, and, you know, they've, they've got thrown to the 
Congress, and they ended up, you know, putting in John Kasich or something. Uh, my, my, I wouldn't worry about it. It's not going to happen. Yeah, I, I well, wouldn't spend too much time concerned. That would be like a, that would be like a coup. <laughs> And yeah, would, and it wouldn't go. I mean, it would go over well, terribly with the American people. So I really don't think that's that's going to be a thing that happens. So I wouldn't worry about it. But uh, I do agree with you. The fact they're even talking about it and this is even a thing is pretty astonishing. John from Bucks County, best named county in America. Great to have you, sir. Shields High team. We will be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. the Buck Sexton Show. So this is going to be something that we can expect for the foreseeable future, and that is that all things Trump now are to be hated. Uh, that Trump is now sort of the Emmanuel, for the left, is like the Emmanuel Goldstein from 1984, that we all just have the, the two minutes hate, and we're just going to uh, y- yell about how terrible Trump, not just Trump as a president, but every, everything Trump has to be terrible. You'll notice there's this feud noted in the New York Post between Graydon Carter, the publisher of Vanity Fair, and uh, Donald Trump over a restaurant, a restaurant review, rather. And when you take a moment, uh, I I read this review on VanityFair.com, and it's very clear that this is now just everyone has to show how much they hate Trump by showing uh, how, you know, how terrible everything associated with Trump is at, at every opportunity. So there'll be nothing that is branded Trump that is sort of safe from this treatment now. Um, They are going to really try to – it's interesting that Trump values his brand so highly. I mean, mean, he says it's worth $9 billion. I don't think anyone's going to pay $9 billion for Trump's name, but that's neither here nor there really. Because what they're going to try to do is not just destroy his presidency, but really destroy the Trump name. I think they will be at best uh, – how do I phrase this? I do not think they'll be successful. I mean, they may tarnish it somewhat in the view of the left, but I think Trump will withstand, the Trump name will withstand all the left throws at it. Uh, Look what they did to Bush, and he didn't even have any buildings, well, you know, residential towers at least named after him. Uh, So I just wanted to go through this uh, this Vanity Fair piece with you for a second because it's it's pretty fascinating uh, reading. It's if somebody wanted to write the most absolutely absolutely scathing and completely ridiculously over the top hateful review of a restaurant that they possibly could it would be this the at the top of the piece is like trump grill could be the worst restaurant in america that's what it says the worst restaurant now now i can tell you having Bounced around the country a little bit. Not as much, I'm sure, as some of you. Uh, but I've, I've, I've made my way around to some places. And I have eaten some pretty terrible food in this country. I have been in my fair share of places. I mean, I've eaten in LaGuardia Airport. I know. Uh, I have been to some places that have horrific food. I know it gets worse in LaGuardia Airport. but And I will also say, by the way, that food in general in this country is so much better now than it was when I was a kid. Uh, your options, uh, you know, your options everywhere are just, I mean, the food that's available in your average grocery store 
in America. It, the quality of the food and the the sort of level the the level of the prepared goods. I mean, everything is just totally different from. I mean, go back and watch the movies in the eighties, and you sort of see these. You know, when the when the family sits down to to eat dinner, and you sort of see what they've got. You know, a lot of it is kind of eh. A lot of spaghetti with canned pasta sauce. Not that that's bad, but I'm just saying that was definitely a thing that everybody was eating all the time before I think they realized that pretty nutritionally vacant and uh, especially, you know, if the pasta sauce is really glorified ketchup. And this is what people would eat, right? Now, food has gotten much better. Um, you know, things like SpaghettiOs and things. I mean, some of you may love SpaghettiOs, sorry. I ate, I will tell you, I ate a lot of tuna fish growing up because I learned how to sort of make the sort of tuna myself, put a little mayo in there and, you know, whatever. And I would make myself tuna. I ate so much tuna as a kid that I can't, I just can't eat tuna anymore, really. I just stay away from it, um, unless it's seared and like a tuna steaks. But I mean, canned tuna fish, I try to stay away from because I, I ate so much of it growing up. Anyway, uh, but I've been to some pretty terrible. I'm trying to think of the worst restaurant I've ever been to. I mean, the, of course, Trump Grill is not the worst restaurant in America. Okay, let's start with that. So that you've got someone writing for Vanity Fair, and that is. The title of this piece, You Are What You Eat, Trump Grill Could Be the Worst Restaurant in America. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is the, uh, the virtue signaling here is, is astonishing, isn't it? I mean, you're virtue signaling by showing the extent of your hatred for Donald Trump. That is now a virtue. If you really, really, really hate Donald Trump, you're a virtuous person. So much so that you have to hate a restaurant that bears his name and that is probably only partially owned by him. You have to denigrate the food that comes out of that kitchen. You have to make snarky comments about whether he fired the illegals that probably worked in the kitchen because illegal aliens work in a lot of kitchens across the country. Uh, Let me give you some of the sections from this. I'm just, I find this fascinating because this is now going to be the way it is for everything. Um, And by the way, they're also going to try to translate this to Trump supporters as much as possible to make it a, a social ill, I mean, to, to make you a, a social pariah if you will openly support the Trump administration or, or even, forget about openly support it, just sort of give it a chance. Just be like, all right, let's see what they do. Let's just see what they do. Even saying that makes you a terrible person now. This is from the Vanity Fair piece that has sparked this feud. Um, and by the way, the, the, also, I'm sorry, I know I keep doing diversions here. This is how I think. The way that they're reporting on this is, oh, look at Trump. He's a president and he's still getting involved in these little sort of petty spats. This piece in Vanity Fair is not about a restaurant. It's about how disgusting and horrific Donald Trump is using the restaurant as a sort of uh, as an analogy or as a a metaphor, as a as a uh, means of getting at Donald Trump himself. Yeah, so it's Trump. It's Trump in a restaurant personified. So this is what this is what this woman, uh, I think Tina Wynn is the name of the author. Yeah, she writes, Donald Trump is a poor person's idea of a rich person. Uh, Fran Leibowitz recently observed in Vanity Fair. They see him. They think if I were rich, I'd have a fabulous tie like that. Nowhere, perhaps, does this reflection appear more accurate than at Trump Grill, which is occasionally spelled grill with an E on various pieces of signage. On one level, the grill suggests the heights of plutocratic splendor, a steakhouse built into the basement of one's own skyscraper. On another level, Trump Grill falls somewhat short of that lofty goal. The restaurant features a stingy number of French-ish paintings that look as though they were bought from home goods. Wall-sized mirrors serve to make the place look much bigger than it actually is. 
The bathrooms transport diners to the experience of desperately searching for toilet paper at a Venezuelan grocery store. And like all exclusive bastions of uh, hot cuisine, hot cuisine, pardon me, there is a sandwich board in front of advertising, uh, in front, advertising two great prefix deals. I mean, this thing, this piece is just dripping with snobbery. Um, and, and what's so fascinating to me is that there still seems to be a desire in the media to sort of point and gawk at Trump as as nouveau riche when Trump has been riche now for, you know, and in the public eye for like 40 years. So, uh, you know, this nouveau isn't, you know, maybe garish in his taste or whatever, but who cares? This piece, though, is worth reading because it's just an exercise. It's a literary exercise in how to be as uh, nasty and snarky and destructive as possible and using a restaurant to actually critique a human being. Um, and look, the photos of food, it does look like it's pretty crappy, but it's the wor- definitely not the worst restaurant in America. I've, I've seen some pretty sketchy places, and this does not qualify. I was, I was trying to think off the top of my head of like what the worst food is that I've had. I definitely remember traveling for some crew races and like driving long distances and stopping with the team and having to eat in places that... But, you know, because of fast food, I mean, that doesn't get some fast food's delicious. Fast food doesn't really count to really be the worst restaurant in America. You'd have to be a restaurant that was trying to be a real restaurant that was trying to be good and failed spectacularly in that. Um, I remember. Oh, I remember I went to a place called WD 50 in New York City, I think, or WD 40 or WD 50. And actually, was this is a long time ago? Let me see if I can look this place up. It's, it was a favorite, uh, famous. I'll tell you the story because it's kind of funny. Um, WD fifty was that what it was called? I think it's still. Oh gosh, it's still open. Whoops. Oh no, permanently closed. Yeah, <laughs> thought so. It's down on the Lower East Side, and this chef Wiley Dufresne was trying to be super creative, and uh, that whole restaurant was the, the menu was like you read it, you're like, what is this? And I remember they brought me some dish and it was supposed to be popcorn, but something with it and on it. I feel like it was like popcorn and like diced scrot or just something that you're just like, this is going to be. And I, I sent it back. I was like, this is actually inedible. This is, I was on a date there, too. I was like, this is inedible. This is disgusting. I can't eat. I, I rarely send back food because I just don't like to be that guy. And I never really I, if I send back wine, it's because it's uh, they've brought me actual vinegar. Um, I, I don't pretend to know the difference. Most the 90 percent of the wine I drink costs less than twenty five dollars a bottle. Um, so and I don't drink beer anymore because celiac disease. What does WD-50 place? I was on a date and I definitely feel like I was trying to. Uh, this is maybe t- eight, nine year, maybe 10 years ago. Gosh, I think it's 10 years. I think it was 10 years ago. And now there's, you know, trying to sort of lower east side, which is a very hip part of Manhattan. I'm trying to uh, make an impression on this lady. I remember she was, she was very pretty, but not very nice. Um, that's all I can. I don't even remember who she was. And we're sitting there at dinner and I'm eating. This food is terrible. And I also don't ever want to be the guy who sends back food as though that's supposed to be like impressive. But I mean, the food was actually disgusting. And it was it was it wasn't a super expensive place. It was pretty expensive. But I'm telling you, it's because I remember at the end of the meal, we were close to the last per, last people in the restaurant because it was so hard to get a reservation. So this place was trendy and it was, you know, I was writing about it. I'm telling you, the food was inedible. It was disgusting. I, I, I wish I could remember some of the dishes. One of the things that was like the popcorn um, it w- it was just abso- absolutely the grossest stuff. I'm trying to see if I can look at some of the stuff that's on the menu here for this restaurant and tell you about some of it. 
Um, but anyway, it was terrible. It was the only time also I've been in a restaurant where it was pretty much cleared out. And at the end, a light fixture. I mean, sh- chandelier makes it sound like the scene from Phantom in the Opera. It wasn't a chandelier, but it was sort of a, a big light fixture out of nowhere, fell down and crashed on the table that was right next to the one I was sitting at with this date I was on. And we we're like the only people in the restaurant. And it was a big enough light fixture that if it had hit one of us, I mean, definitely going to the hospital. And that was at the end of the meal. And I always remember that. I was like, that's pretty fitting. That pretty much, the food here was super gross. It was expensive. The staff was snooty. And they and I almost got uh, you know knocked out by a light fixture. I always remember that. That was one of the worst restaurant experiences I've ever had. I mean, I've had some other really bad ones. I definitely went on a date with a young lady. She ate tuna steak. She got histamine poisoning, which is a specific thing to tuna, which just gives you the worst kind of like food poisoning, you know, not to be gross, but you know, the both ends. I mean, it's terrible. It's terrible. That was not fun. That was that, that date. Uh, we ended up actually dating, but that date did not go well. Uh, anyway, but yeah, the Trump restaurant thing is the only review I've ever read of a restaurant that was as scathing. And you can see it on vanity fair for yourself. And it's worth reading because you'll see what I mean. It's not about the restaurant. It's about Trump. It's just like, this is an opportunity to show how much I hate Trump because now that's, that's sort of a new social currency that proves how cool you are. That, pr- that that proves that you're like one of the good, smart people. And yeah, um, there was a, a, a restaurant, a review of Guy Fieri's place in Times Square here in New York City, which I've never been to. And that was another like it was the reviewer had decided I'm going to um, I'm going to just open the chest and pull out all the internal organs of this restaurant and and then put them in a blender. I mean, it was just complete annihilation. That's pretty much what this review is on Vanity Fair. But I just, I, I kind of wonder if any of you have, uh, this would be kind of a fun thing for tomorrow, and I'll try to remember this, or John, try to remind me. I think it'd be fun to do, if you have any restaurant, it doesn't just have to be gross, I don't want to just hear about gross food. Like, if you have hair in your soup, I mean, that happens all the time. But if you have any restaurant disaster experience that you want to share on radio tomorrow during Freestyle Friday, I would kind of want to know what it is. I want to see if you can top my, the sh- you know, the, the light fixture that almost knocked me out at the end of a completely overpriced and pretty terrible meal. I'd be very curious to know if you could outdo that one. I'm sure I've got some other ones, too. Um, they're, uh, yeah, I'm sure I've got some others that I could share, but that's that's high on the list. I kind of want to go check out the Guy Fieri. I, I forget what the place. John, do you know the place in, in Times Square, Guy Fieri's restaurant, what it's called? I feel it's called like All American something or whatever. But, I mean, they, you know, they said that the drinks tasted like battery acid. I mean, it was just like, woo. Um, I, I do have I do take a certain pleasure in reading reviews of movies when the reviewer decides that they're not going to go. It's not like a, a, a pluses and minuses. It's just chainsaw like we're just they're just going to go after it. Those can be kind of entertaining. That's there you go. Guys, American Kitchen and Bar got one of the worst reviews. In the, I think it was in the New York Times. Worst reviews of anything I have ever read ever. I mean, it's 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 a review. It's like somebody writing a review of what it would be like to have the bubonic plague. I mean, that was like what the review was for that that place um, in New York Times. So anyway, but I digress. 888-900-3393. If you want to call in and chat before we close out, I'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network.
You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. I just wanted to read to you from the review that I mentioned uh, to close out the show. This is from 2012. As not, as not seen on TV, this is from the New York Times, writing with Guy Fieri. Look, I hate the New York Times, but this was pretty funny. Guy Fieri, this is a quote from the, start, from the top. Guy Fieri, have you eaten at your new restaurant in Times Square? Have you pulled up one of the 500 seats at Guy's American Kitchen and Bar and ordered a meal? Did you eat the food? Did it live up to your expectations? Did panic grip your soul as you stared into the whirling hypno-wheel of the menu where adjectives and nouns spin in a crazy vortex? When you saw the burger described as Guy's Pat Lafrida Custom Blend All-Natural Creekstone Farm Black Angus Beef Patty LTOP Lettuce Tomato Onion Pickle SMC Super Melty Cheese and a Slathering of Donkey Sauce on Garlic Buttered Brioche, did your mind touch the void for a minute? Did you notice the menu was an unreliable predictor of what actually came to the table? I mean, he just goes on. It's it's like it is somebody just dropped, you know, it is the the written equivalent of dropping the nuke on somebody's restaurant from the New York Times. Anyway, I'm not sure it's fair or not. I'm just saying it was an entertaining read. Uh, team, we're going to have a fantastic Freestyle Friday tomorrow. Action movie quotes and more. Shield tie. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645.